Go ahead and turn, if you would, to John chapter 2. We're going to continue our series. While you're turning there, I'm going to bring something up on the screen here in a second. I'm sure you guys have seen some pretty ridiculous products out there. I mean, we live in a culture where people have the freedom to come up with all kinds of crazy products and then try to sell them. And then other people are foolish enough to purchase them. Let me give you an example. I found this this week. This is called Spray-On Mud. It's a real product. Spray-On Mud. For that authentic off-road look. I find the word authentic quite ironic there. That authentic off-road look. It's a spray-on mud that you literally can buy. It's a product developed in England. And if you read the product's description, it talks about, are you tired of your friends making fun of you for owning an SUV? Or are you in, in something along those lines? Well, then buy this spray-on mud so that you can impress all your friends with your off-roading activities that you were a part of the weekend before. Actually trick people into thinking, man, Steve went off-roading with his expedition this week. Pretty cool. I like Steve more now because he drives his expedition off-road. So believe it or not, that's a real product. You know what? In kids, instead of boys especially, instead of actually going outside and getting dirty, you can just buy spray-on mud. Just spray it on yourself, and that way you can just sit at the computer all day, right? Spray the mud on yourself. Say, yeah, Mom, I've been outside playing. No, I don't want to encourage you to, to be disobedient. But that's, that's the image here. This, this, this spray-on mud that is trying to convince people of something that's totally not true. In today's passage of Scripture... Jesus speaks of a type of faith. I should say John speaks of, as he relates the story about Jesus, a type of faith or a type of belief or a type of Christianity that is simply spray-on. It's superficial. It's inauthentic. It's fake. It may fool some, but it can't fool the one who can see into the depths of our soul. Today's passage teaches us that there is such a thing as a false faith, and Jesus despises it. He rejects it. He rejects it, and he rejects those who practice it. So that's where we're going to go today in today's passage. So turn to John chapter 2. We're going to begin in verse 23. But I'm going to read all the way down to John 3, verse 15. Now let me tell you why. Because we need the context here of what Jesus is saying at the end of John 2. Now you guys know, children, you know this. If you don't know it, you should know it, and you'll know it now. That the verse numbers and the chapter numbers in your Bible are not inspired. Those are not inerrant. Those were added later to assist God's people as we read through the Bible systematically and help us to organize it and so we could think through portions of the Bible or even memorize passages of Scripture. But those verse numbers and those chapter numbers were not there in the original writings. Therefore, those are not inspired. And in some cases, they kind of get in the way. And today is an example of that, where the chapter division actually gets in the way of us understanding what's happening here. So I want to read straight through the end of chapter 2 and into the beginning of chapter 3. Now, we're not going to have time today to dig into chapter 3 the way we really need to. Chapter 3 is one of the most important texts in all of the Bible. 
phenomenal passage. We're only going to touch on the surface of it today because what I want to do is focus on the end of chapter 2 and let chapter 3 tell us what that's all about. Because really chapter 3 is an illustration of what John is talking about at the end of chapter 2. So let's begin in verse 23 of John chapter 2. If you don't have your Bible this morning, you can use one of the ones that are in front of you there at the bottom of the seats. And if you need a Bible, obviously you can take that home with you. We want you to have a Bible. And it will also be on the screen this morning. John chapter 2, verse 23, the Word of God says the following. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said this to you. You must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and we bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Father, we ask now that you bless the reading of your word. We pray, Lord, that you'd cause us to hear, give us ears to hear, give me a mouth to speak. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, the end of chapter 2 is a pretty difficult text. Why is it difficult? Well, because if you've been paying attention the last couple of weeks and you're trying to follow John's train of thought for his whole book, you'll remember that we've, we said that John's purpose for writing the book is what he gives us in chapter 20. And I'm going to read verses 30 and 31 for you out of that chapter again. I've read them the last three weeks, but let me read it again to drive it home. It says, Now Jesus did many other signs. Signs are important in the book of John. Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written, these what? These signs. These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So John has told us that he is sharing these stories about Jesus and these teachings of Christ and these signs so that we'll believe. Not only just believe, but believe in his name, and by doing so, that we will have life. That's the purpose of the book. 
Yet we read here in this chapter, at the end of chapter 2, it says, many believed in his name. That's good, right? Many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. And then verse 24 says, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them. And that's troubling. That's worrisome when you read that. My goodness, Jesus, doesn't he want people believing in his name? After they've seen these signs, to believe in his name, yet he won't commit himself to them? What's happening here? Wasn't this the very thing that was supposed to be happening, yet Jesus decides not to commit himself to these people? He doesn't accept their belief? Why? What's happening? Well, I want us to look at this text here, and I think that's why we need chapter 3, to help us understand what's happening in chapter 2. What's happening here is what happens even in our day as well. That there are people who believe in Jesus, but not in a saving way. There is a way to believe in Jesus Christ that's not a saving type of belief. They believe in Jesus, but not in the way where they accept Jesus the way Scripture tells them to accept Jesus. There is a type of faith both in Jesus' day and ours that is spray-on faith. That's false. That's inauthentic. But Jesus can't be fooled. No spray-on faith will trick him, for he knows all things. We can be tricked very easily. People can walk in with the spray-on faith into our church and fool every one of us. But Jesus can't be fooled. So what I want us to see today in this text today, and then we will expand upon it next week as we talk about what true faith really is. I want us to see that Jesus sees all things in all men. Thus, he rejects faith that is not faith. He sees all things in all men, and he rejects faith that's not real faith. He sees all things in all men. Nothing is hidden from Christ. In this text, we see his divine omniscience as the Son of God. First, he knows all people. Verse 24, Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. Every single person who's ever lived is known by Jesus. He knows every single person in this room. Matter of fact, he was intimately involved in your creation. He is man, but he is also God. John wants us to see the glory of Jesus, the divine Son of God, who knows all men. But his knowledge is more than just an intellectual grasp or comprehension that you exist. No, he knows more than that, much more than that. It says that he knew all people. And then verse 25, he needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. So he not only knows men, all men, he knows what's in man. So he knows all things about all men. He sees the deep secrets of the heart. He knows our innermost thoughts. Nothing can be hidden from him. Our fears, our sins, our longings, our motivations, our true self. Who we are when no one else is looking. Like I said, we can fool the world and we can even fool ourselves. But we can't fool Jesus and he needs no help. It says here, he needs no one to bear witness. Perhaps one of the, I think one of the most tragic stories to come 
across the newswire these days is the story of what's happening with Lance Armstrong. It's just very disappointing to hear what's happening. Especially this athlete that many looked up to, many children looked up to. And here it is that he had falsified things. He, he had this sort of fake life going on. And it's all unraveling now, but, but no one could tell. No one knew. Matter of fact, even the, even the testing wasn't sophisticated enough to catch his very high-tech cheating that he was doing. So how did they find out? It was the witnesses. It was those that were closest to him that turned against him. It were other athletes that saw what he had been doing and that knew intimately the details of what had been going on and how he had skirted the system and made it all work. And now his whole life is unraveling because there were witnesses that were able to expose the false center of his life. Jesus doesn't need that. He doesn't need the witnesses. He sees even when the world doesn't see. When we really contemplate and meditate upon his deep knowledge of us, it should leave us feeling totally exposed and willing to surrender to his lordship. Do you remember remember Peter's exchange with Jesus in John chapter 21? We'll eventually get there as we get to the end of the life of Christ. We're going through this series, Seeing and Savoring Jesus Christ. My projection is that should be in about five years. So when we get there, we'll talk about that. But if you remember reading this story, John chapter 21, Peter is being really restored. He's gone out fishing with the other disciples. This is after Jesus has already risen. But Peter here, he is still wounded from his own sin where he denied the Lord Jesus three times. And we have this beautiful story where Jesus comes and he tells them to cast their nets on the other side of the boat. They catch this miraculous catch of fish. They realize who it is at that point. Peter swims to shore and they sit down with Jesus. And three times Jesus asks Peter, do you love me? And Peter responds the first time and says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And then Jesus asks him again. And Peter responds the same way. Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus asks a third time. And this time Peter is grieved in his heart and he says, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. You know me, Jesus. I have nothing left to hide. Look into the depths of my soul and you'll see, Jesus, yes, I love you. Perhaps not the way I should love you, to the degree I should love you, but I love you, Jesus. You see, friends, we must get to Peter's place. Sometimes it takes a lot of pain and a lot of self-inflicted difficulty to get us there. But we need to get to Peter's place. That is, a place where we have nothing to hide. Not that it was hidden anyway. But we must acknowledge Jesus' absolute sight into our lives and knowledge of our intimate details and his lordship over us. Now that can be a great comfort to us. Or it can be a great terror. Or it can be both. You are fully known only by one person, Jesus Christ. As one preacher put it, your spouse's knowledge of you or your best friend's knowledge of you compares to Jesus' knowledge of you like first grade math to quantum mechanics. He knows us better than we even know ourselves. We all suffer from the sin of self-deception, don't we? 
I mean, I'm sure either you've watched it or you've seen highlights from it. Okay, all you got to do is watch the tryouts from American Idol to know that people suffer from self-deception. And they'll get up there and they'll sing, and the judges usually aren't Christ-like in the way they correct the singing. And the person's all upset and they say, well, so-and-so told me I could sing good. I've been singing all my life, and I'm the next whoever. Self-deception is a powerful thing. And it's that self-deception, I think, that often leads us into a false faith, a spray-on faith. A faith that Jesus sees and rejects. A faith that Jesus won't commit himself to. Verse 23, it says, Many believed, now if you're familiar with the word belief in the New Testament, especially in the book of John, you know it's the Greek word pistuo. Okay, many believed, and it usually refers to a saving faith, in his name when they saw signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust. Very interesting thing here. The word entrust is the same Greek word. Pistuo. Jesus did not pistuo entrust himself to them because he knew all people. So you have the play on words here in the Greek that does not come through in the English. There were many that believed in Jesus, but Jesus, for his part, didn't believe in them. Many committed themselves or trusted in Jesus. I mean, that's what we tell people to do today, don't we? Trust in Jesus, invite him into your heart. Many did that, but Jesus didn't commit himself or trust in them. So the big question that kind of jumps out at this text to me isn't to ask you this morning if you've committed your life to Christ, but to ask you, has Christ committed himself to you? Because there's a type of faith, a type of commitment, belief that is deceptive and it's false. And you may think you've self-deceived yourself like those American Idol singers. I've given my life over to Christ. Has Christ, though, given himself to you? Because there's a type of faith where he does that. It's real faith. Christ commits himself to those who have real faith. Now, as I said earlier, this is a troubling passage because John calls on us to believe, 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 believe. It's all throughout the book of John. But here we have this example of belief that John doesn't want us to have. It's false belief. So to help us out, I think John knew we were going to struggle with that. To help us out, he gives us the story of Nicodemus. And not only the story of Nicodemus, we also have two more stories of people that Jesus encounters. One of them being the woman at the well and later a a ruler from the city of Cana. And Those are going to be in chapter 3 and 4. And in both of those stories, we see this illustrated, sort of. Especially in the story of Nicodemus. So let us now see and savor two facts. There's two points to today's message. Right now I'm taking a class on preaching. Aren't you glad I'm taking a class on preaching? I'm taking a class on preaching through Covenant Theological Seminary. It's a free class. And I just heard yesterday, after I was already finished with this sermon... You can't have just two points. You've got to have three. Because in a Western culture, two points leaves people feeling incomplete. So I apologize in advance. You're going to feel incomplete today. Partially because I don't have time to get into the rest of it. There really is a third point. Probably a lot more that we can get into. But just two things today I want us to see. 
First, in your notes there, Jesus, seeing all things in all men, rejects the false faith that depends on signs. Jesus, being the one who sees all things in all men, he rejects the false faith that depends on signs. Verse 23, it says that they saw, they believed when they saw the signs. Apparently Jesus had done a bunch of more signs since the wedding at Cana. He comes into Jerusalem for the Passover week, and apparently he did a lot of miracles and signs during that week. And then look at verse 2 of chapter 3 when Nicodemus speaks to Jesus. He says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. You see, signs had their purpose. They were to point to Christ and validate that he was who he said he was. But the signs in and of themselves were not the end goal. Nowhere were they to be the source or the center of anyone's faith. Nicodemus, as well as many others who had seen Jesus, had experienced something. They had experienced what Jesus was doing. I mean, to see a sign, that's a tremendous experience. You probably go back and tell stories about that. They experienced a certain religious activity and they saw these signs, but they had a faith based solely upon the experience of seeing the signs and and not upon Jesus himself. There is great, great danger in sign-dependent faith. As I mentioned last week, and as Jesus will later say to the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 12, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. Spiritual adultery is putting one's faith and hope in anything outside of Christ alone. So spiritual adulterers oftentimes require signs in order to believe. Or a sign in order to do what Jesus wants them to do. A sign in order to be obedient. A sign in order to submit to his lordship. Spiritual adulterers oftentimes desire signs in order to believe. I gotta have a sign. I want a sign. Spiritual adulterers oftentimes love signs and find their hope in signs themselves. That's what was happening here during this Passover week in Jerusalem. But here in America, 2,000 years later, People haven't changed. Sign-dependent faith still exists and contaminates the church. And it's not just the, the crazy people on the TV that are doing the signs and wonders that I'm talking about here. It's contaminated even the way we read our Bibles. I mean, we treat the Bible like a Ouija board sometimes. Oh, Lord, what do I need to do today? Oh, God, help me know what to do. How do I make this decision? Okay, that's not the answer, Lord. Uh, we treat our Bibles like we're conjuring up something instead of how they're supposed to be used as a direct, clear, and infallible word that God has spoken to us that guides every part of our life in principle and in practice. From the way we read our Bibles to the way we make life decisions. Oh God, just give me a sign so I can know if we need to do this or take this job or whatever. We place our hope and our faith in subjective experiences. Don't you know Satan can give you signs too? 
He can. He does. That subjective experiences instead of the objective, never-changing Word of God, which is the Word of Christ. John chapter 6 is very helpful here. In that chapter, we have the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000. And after feeding them, we read in verse 14, when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. So they believe, right? This is him. This is the Christ. Well, yes and no. They believe, but they don't believe. They believe in signs and in a great experience, and the evidence of that is that they want more. They believe in a Jesus who will give them what they want, so they even try in that passage to go and make him king by force. And later they follow him around like a puppy, following someone who gave him a treat. I say this sometimes, it offends pet owners. Dogs don't have emotions. They don't love you. They like you because you feed them. They are not committed to you. They are committed to their belly. I'm sorry. I've got pet owners out there just calling me down, speaking blasphemy. They don't. They, they operate with instinct. They don't have the capacity. That's what makes us in the image of God and animals not in the image of God. Right, Colt? We talked about that just this last week. Animals cannot love you. They love their bellies, and you put food in it. So they come up and go, happy, I'm happy you're home. You gonna feed me? You gonna pet me? Scratch my ear, scratch my ear. That's a pet. Unfortunately, some people who have belief have a belief based upon their bellies. Their appetites, their fleshly desires. God, give me, God, give me, God, give me. I love you, Jesus. Give me, give me, give me, give me, give me. Give me. And they're no different than a dog panting at the feet of the person who happens to own the food. And that's what happened in John chapter 6. They didn't really want Jesus to be their Lord. They wanted a king who would give them bread. When Jesus tells them that he himself is the bread of life and that they must have the type of faith where they feast on him, they no longer believe. Matter of fact, they leave. They don't have true faith. Faith that comes from the Spirit of God. Faith that is the fruit of what the rest of chapter 3 talks about. What we're not going to have time to totally get to today. But it says in verse 63 of John chapter 6, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. The multitudes said, we believe. And Jesus said, my word that I'm speaking to you, this is spirit and truth. But there's some of you who just won't believe my word. All you want is your belly to be filled. And you'll believe in me so long as I'm doing that. It says in that passage of John chapter 6, continuing in verse 64, For Jesus knew from the beginning 
who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. He needs no one to bear him witness. He sees right through the spray on faith. In verse 65, he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. And after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. You see, Jesus sees right into the heart and he has the ability to expose, spray on faith. Now, why did they want signs? Why do we want signs today? Because they were adulterers. They were idolaters, spiritual adulterers. They, they wanted a man who could give them what they wanted. For first and foremost, they wanted a man who could, first and foremost, as we read in, in the Gospels, they wanted a man who could liberate them from Rome. Okay? That's why they didn't see Jesus as the Messiah, because they wanted a Messiah who would liberate them from Rome. And they will even say, like in John chapter 7, verse 31, many people believed in him, and they said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? So they see Jesus' signs and think, okay, he can get us out of this Roman predicament. And secondly, they wanted a Lord who provided for their self-centered wants, their fleshly needs, and their worldly desires. That's why, and I want you to listen closely, that's why sign-dependent faith is really just a category of faith that is not limited to miracles and signs. You see, the miracles and the signs is just an expression of our inward desire. Our desire for miracles and signs is just an expression of our inward desire to feed our own appetites. So maybe we don't ask for miracles today, but we'll say something like, Jesus, if you give me blank, I'll love you. Jesus, if you fix this blank, I'll serve you. Jesus, if you just intervene in this blank situation, I'll be a bolder witness for you. And we feed the monster by flipping the gospel on its head from being a God-centered, God-magnified, God-exalting truth like we talked about in class today. The church exists to glorify God. And we flip it on its head and make it a man-centered, feelings-driven, need-meeting, religious experience meant to resolve whatever we put in the blank and resolve it in the way we want it resolved. You see, that spray on faith. What if Jesus never fixes blank? What if Jesus never meets blank need in your life? What if you suffer for the rest of your life with that unmet need? What if? Is he not still Lord? You see, Jesus himself, Jesus himself must be our highest desire. If he isn't, then our faith is simply spray on faith meant to cover up what we really love. If and only if Jesus is our highest joy, our highest good, our highest pleasure, our highest treasure, if and only if that is the case, will we have a true abiding faith that is real. That's why Jesus told those sign-seeking, stomach-worshipping men in John 6, to feast on him. I am the bread of life. My flesh is true bread. My blood is true wine. And later in John 8, 31, we read, So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, they believed in him, he said, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. 
and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Now he's speaking to people who believed in him. He says, if you abide in my word, and my word abides in you, or if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. If you read the rest of John chapter 8, you'll see by the end of John chapter 8, those who believed in him were trying to stone him. Because Jesus has this ability to wipe off the spray on faith and expose what we really love. And when he does, we get violent about it. If your faith is false, it will become evident because eventually you're not going to get what you want. You remember Simon the sorcerer in Acts chapter 8 when we preached through the book of Acts eons ago? John, uh, Acts chapter 8, Simon says in verse 13 of Acts chapter 8, Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, so he not only believed, he got dunked. Believed, and after he was baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. So what does he see? He sees signs. He's amazed by the signs. But he doesn't have a true belief. How do we know? Because it continues, verse 18. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. His heart was not right before God. So his belief and then his subsequent baptism meant nothing. It was spray on faith. Simon saw his faith as simply a means to power, to gain, to glory, to feed his appetites, and his heart was exposed. This false faith is reflected in Jesus' parable of the sower. Matthew chapter 13, verse 22. As for what was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves unfruitful. Satan knows our idolatry. He knows our unquenchable thirst for signs to please and quench our earthly appetites. He knows our desire for experiences that tingle our fleshly desires. And so Satan, being the deceiver that he is, he uses signs. Matthew 24, 24. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. Why can signs and wonders not be where we put our hope? Because signs and wonders are used by Satan actually to lead people astray. There's a very important passage in 2 Thessalonians 2. Let me read this one to you. It says, the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders. Now let me stop right there. The ESV has chosen to translate that false signs and wonders. But in reality, the word false in the Greek means lying signs and wonders. When you hear someone say that's a false sign and wonder, what, what does that leave you with? The impression that, they, that it wasn't real, that they just manipulated you. It was like a, like a magic show. Like David Copperfield, you know, he made the Statue of Liberty disappear. He didn't really do it. It just sort of looked like that. That's not what this text is talking about. It says it's lying signs and wonders, meaning they are signs and wonders meant to lead you astray, to deceive you. 
So it says, Satan with all power and lying signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Sign-dependent faith is simply man-centered faith, which is spray-on faith. We have spray-on faith, don't we? In our culture, we don't spray mud on our car to show that we're a believer. No, we stick a sticker on there. Honk if you love Jesus. Look at my fish eat the little Darwin guy. I'm a believer. But Jesus sees to the heart of man, doesn't he? And he's not fooled. There's, there's another small thing that stands out to me in this passage today, which is our second point. Verse 2, it says, This man came to Jesus by night, which leads me to conclude, number two, that Jesus, seeing all things in all men, rejects the false faith that fears men. Faith that fears man above God is no faith at all. Faith that tests the winds of popular opinion before it acts is no faith at all. It will eventually be proven false. John 12 verse 42 says this. Many, even of the authorities, believed in him. There's that word again. Believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it. So that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they love the glory, this is the key, for they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. They love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes... That's, that's why Nicodemus is showing up at night. It wasn't the normal time to go talk to someone. Late at night, there's the cover of darkness. He shows up. Because he doesn't want his fellow Pharisees to know that he's even entertaining the idea that this guy might be truly the Messiah. It's the same idol, it's just another symptom. Sign-seeking faith serves the idolatry of self, and man-fearing faith preserves the idolatry of self. Sign-seeking faith serves it. Man-fearing faith preserves it. This is the faith that may seem to be real at first, but eventually again it withers. Again, from the passage where Jesus speaks of the sower and the seed, Matthew 13, verse 20. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Isn't that a believer, right? Someone that receives the word of God with joy? Verse 21. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. You know, I personally, let me kind of expose a little bit of my eschatology to you this morning. I personally believe that the church will endure the tribulation. And one of the reasons I think the church will endure the tribulation is because it will be a great purifying time for the church. So I am post-trib. All right? I think it'll be a great purifying time for the church because I think the church will go through this, this, this great trial where we have to make a decision. Do I fear man or do I fear God? It's a great challenge to me and an encouragement to me to read the stories of the martyrs around the globe. November 4th, two weeks Two weeks, not only daylight savings time, by the way, more importantly, it's the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church. So on that Sunday, as I've done every Sunday 
Every International Day of Prayer since the Bennett Harbors will bring attention to the persecuted church and we'll have a moment of prayer that Sunday for the persecuted church around the world. And I'm encouraged when I read stories of the persecuted church because I see true faith being lived out. But I'm challenged because I see how weak my faith is. These brothers and sisters, they don't back down. They don't fear man even when an AK-47 is pressed against their skull. These brothers and sisters don't waver. Here they are standing strong in the midst of heavy persecution, the threat of death, guns pointing to their heads, machetes of, with mobs full of machetes coming to their house. And here I am and I waver when I run into an uncomfortable Facebook discussion. So I'm encouraged, and yet I'm greatly challenged in how weak my faith is. How weak we all are here in the U.S., I'm sure. But these fellow heirs and the family of God, these fellow partakers of the bread of his body and the wine of his blood, these people really live out what Jesus said in Matthew 10, verse 26. He said, have no fear of them. For nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light. And what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him, God, who can destroy both body and soul in hell. These people live out that passage of Scripture every day. No room for spray on faith there. There's no room for spray on faith when your village is being sacked by angry mobs who hate you because of your true belief in Jesus Christ. No room for spray on faith there. It wipes off real quick. Paul had a co-worker named Demas. Demas is mentioned in Colossians 4 verse 14 and then in Philemon verse 24. He's one of Paul's team members. One of his inner circle there. He's one of the ones he mentions when they greet the churches as these letters are being sent out. Yet we read in 2 Timothy 4.9, a very distressing verse. It says, do your best to come to me soon. And then it continues in verse 10. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. It scares the bejeebies out of me that one of Paul's inner circle had a spray on faith. It causes me to examine myself. It should cause each one of us to examine ourselves. We are told in Scripture to examine yourself. Make sure your faith is real. Make your calling and election sure. Paul was in jail at this time. He's facing the executioner's blade when he writes 2 Timothy I gather that Demas, who loved the world, also loved his head and feared man more than he feared God. And he loved the world more than he loved God. That's the mark of false faith. Sign loving because it desires to have its worldly fleshly needs met. Man fearing because it wants to protect those needs at all costs. 
spray on faith. So this leads us to conclude that Jesus, who sees all things and all men, rejects false faith. And therefore, we must have a different category of faith. And that's what I don't have time to go into today. That's why you're going to feel incomplete after the message. Where does one get that faith? Are we to muster up more sincerity? Just be more sincere. Do you muster up more sincerity about Jesus in order to have the true faith? Well, many of these Jews who believed in him were very sincere about their belief. But they didn't make their faith real. How about passion? Do you just need to have more passion about Jesus? So that when you speak to people, you speak like Steve speaks on Sunday morning from the pulpit. Ah, 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 all the time. Is that what true faith is about? No. You want to know a passionate people. Like I said, they got picked up stones to stone Jesus when he didn't say what they wanted him to say. They had passion. Maybe they just need to muster up more good deeds. Maybe a true faith is a faith that has more good deeds. It not only has more sincerity, it has more passion, it has more action. Well, Nicodemus was a Pharisee. Pharisees did a lot of quote-unquote good things. What then? Where does real faith come from? And that's what we'll spend the next week, Lord willing, discussing But real quickly, quite simply, this morning, real faith comes only from being born again. You must be born again is the banner over the rest of these verses. You must be born again. And just like you can't be born on your own the first time, I think I'll just be born today. No, There had to be outside forces that brought you into this world. So too, to make you spiritually alive, you rely on and you need something outside of you. Namely, the Spirit of the Holy God to revive a dead soul. I'm excited about next week if you can't tell. Because that's real faith. Bottom line, real faith has nothing to do with what you can muster up. It has everything to do with what God, a sovereign God, does through his Holy Spirit. And we'll talk about that some more next week. You must be born again. Now, Nicodemus' story is one of great hope. If you're here today and you maybe feel like you have this superficial spray on faith, maybe you can't face down the mob of violent killers, Because your faith isn't real. Maybe you can't stop seeking God just for your own needs to be met because your faith isn't real. Well, Nicodemus' story should be a story of great hope to you. For this man-fearing, sign-seeking religious man eventually sheds his fear of man. We read it in John chapter 7, verses 50 through 52, because he stands up for Jesus there before the other council members. And then in John chapter 19, Nicodemus is one of the two men who go, it wasn't the disciples, It was Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea who go and retrieve Jesus' body off the cross and put it into a tomb. This man had had a faith that required signs and that feared man. And now you see a faith that required no signs and and had no fear of man. So let Nicodemus be a great encouragement to you this morning if you feel like perhaps that's me. My faith is just 
an act. So right now I want us to bow our heads and close our eyes and let's pray. Let's pray to Jesus who peers into the soul of every single one of you here, and myself included, and knows every act of faith that we do, whether it's real or not. And with your heads bowed and your eyes closed, let me just say this. Even as a believer, even as a believer, we fall back into our fleshly ways and we do things not out of faith. For if something's done without faith, it doesn't please God. We do things man-centered, flesh-driven, and Jesus sees it all. So let's come to the one who sees and beg him to do a work in our heart now as we pray. Jesus, we thank you that you do see all men and you see what's in all men and you need no one to come and to help you no more. You need no one to come and shed light on the situation. You are the light. Your word is truth. And when we stand in the light of your word, look into that mirror of truth, the very words of Christ himself, it cuts to the heart and it exposes our sin. So God, this morning we pray that we would be a people of the word who are always being laid bare before you so that you can take away any false actions that we're a part of. I am convinced because I know myself that there are some here this morning because they just came here because it's what they do on a Sunday morning and if they could be somewhere else, they would. That is a false faith. It's a spray on Christianity. And so God, I pray that you would move in our hearts, expose that faith and cause us to repent and to turn from it. And Lord Jesus, if there be anyone here this morning who has not responded to the gospel of Jesus Christ and been born again, then I pray that they would come and talk to me this morning. I know we haven't gone into great depth about that this morning, but Jesus, your spirit doesn't hinge on my good preaching or bad preaching. Your spirit moves as it sees fit, just like the wind. So move, Holy Spirit, convict of sin, convict of idolatry, convict of spiritual adultery, convict of spray on faith, and bring people to yourself this morning. We ask this in the holy and precious name of Jesus, who sees all things and all men. Amen.